Thank you, thank you so very much for beautiful music this morning. Let's get into the study of God's Word. We've talked about how the Lord is providing, protecting, helping. So this morning we want to turn to Genesis chapter 2 as we continue in a series, a series that's talking about strengthening grip, getting a better grip on things in your life. Basically, this is a counseling service that what, what we planned to cover a lot of different topics. And the topic that we are approaching today, this morning, is the idea of your family and working with it, getting a better grip on your family. So who I'm speaking to this morning? I'm speaking to anybody who ever hopes to get married, is married, or is going to have children, or has children. So I think that encompasses a lot of folk here to say, hey, join me in this study in particular. Pay close attention. That what we're talking about is family and making sure that what we do with our families is get a real good grip and follow what God has. We said that there are three truths. We've only talked about two and a half, one and a half of them that we wanted to share in this brief little mini-series. And that was one is God needs to be a welcome guest in your life if you want his blessings upon family. We took that from the book of Psalms. Where in Psalms, except the Lord build a house, they that labor in vain. That passage is getting to the principle that just like there is a beautiful, beautiful picture here of God's own relationship within the Trinity, so we have like a Trinitarian relationship when it comes to having a good, solid home. It's not God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, but rather this time it's God, husband, and wife. In order to have a really good home, you need to make sure the Lord's involved in your home. You need to make sure that you're born again that you've accepted Christ to be your Savior. If you have never done that, please seek us out afterwards. We'd love to show you how you can know from the Word of God that you are one day going to be in heaven. The Word of God promises. It says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so if you want to develop a really good home, start at the first place. Start with a relationship with God Almighty. Call upon Christ to be your Savior, to move within your heart, to be able to become your personal guide and director in your life. Have His Spirit live within you. Make sure your spouse does the same thing. And together, you can grow in grace and in Christ to build a godly home, a beautiful home that God can bless. But we are talking about this topic more than, more than the first one in the last week and then this week and next week. And that is this truth. God has several rules that every family needs to abide by if they want their blessings. They want His blessings. And that's based on Genesis chapter 2. Before I read it, let me see if I can gather your attention a little bit better. When, several years ago when we moved into our house, we needed to get some furniture to fill in the rooms that we hadn't had furniture for. So we went down to get that long-lasting, top-of-the-line furniture that we can pass on for generations to generations. We went to Ikea, and we got this put-it-together furniture. And one of the pieces we got was this sofa couch that could be a couch, but it could fold out and serve as a bed for if we had visitors at our house, missionaries, family, grandkids, things like that. And it's worked really well. It's not used very much, but it works really well. It's lasted quite a few years already, five. And so it's done well. So when we did the uh, basement, I expanded a little bit and made a little of a reading room, a den down there. I thought, well, I'm going to get another one. And so we drove to Ikea. We got the couch. I brought it home. And it's all self-assembled stuff, yes, that you have to put together. Well, I had done a couch once before. So that meant I can assemble the next one without reading the directions. Do you doubt my ability? 
My wife did, and she kept on giving me the directions, but I said, I know what I'm doing, no, I'm doing. So I got the couch all together, but there was one problem, and it was all done. It wouldn't fold up. And so she says, maybe you should have read the directions. You know that Holy Spirit wife that shows up that moment? You should have read the directions. And when I read the directions, I found out that there was one part that when I did it the first time, it said, make sure you do and put this one piece of you know, springs at a certain spot. And I hadn't done that. I had, I had good intentions. I had put a couch together before. The couch was working fine and dandy. And even this one looked good. It just wouldn't fold up. But there was something missing because I didn't follow the directions. There are times that in our homes, we think we got it all. We think we know it all. We think we, know, we, we remember from the past. But if we don't keep up going back to the directions, we might have things looking good on Sunday morning, but actually it's not functioning on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It might look good to your friends, but it doesn't work the way it's supposed to when it's just the two of you. So these rules that we're giving you, they're important for every one of us who wants to be, is, or going to be in the future in a married relationship. That we abide by these rules, and we talked about them already. The rule number one is marriage and family is a good thing. Don't go into it belittling it. Praise God for it. Marriage is for one man and one woman alone. We talked about your spouse, you, when you're searching for you need to let God be a part of this search. We, we point out this rule, that you're, as a spouse, you're to complement, not compete against each other. So now we go into another rule that's very important, this rule. When a couple marries, they form their own new family unit, independent of their previous family ties. What that means is this. Just like he says in Genesis 2.24, look at the text. When he says he brought Eve to Adam in verse 23. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we learn from there is God is dictating, God is guiding, God is saying, it's my design that kids grow up and cut ties with their previous family. Not all together, but they cut many of the ties. What he is saying is God's design is for parent-child relationships and interaction to change. In fact, to grow somewhat apart when they get married. Oh, that's tough to swallow. That's hard to do. In fact, there's a folk song that talks about how hard it is to do. Do you remember the old folk song where it says, Billy boy, Billy boy, oh, where have you been? Billy boy, Billy boy. Any of you, any of you remember this? Okay. And it goes on, oh, where have you been? Charming Billy. I've been to seek a wife. She's the joy of my life. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. It goes on. Did she ask you to come in? Billy boy, Billy boy. Did she ask you to come in? Charming Billy. Yes, she asked me to come in. There's a dimple on her chin. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. He goes on. Did she set a chair for you? Any? Did she set it uh, for you a chair? Yes, she set the chair. There are ringlets in her hair. She's a young thing, but she cannot leave her mother. He goes on. Can she make a cherry pie? So we're finding out this girl is talented. Okay. And can she make a cherry pie? Yes, she can make a cherry pie quick as a cat can wink an eye. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. So you're thinking, oh, it's just you know two kids. Falling in love. Then you get to the last stanza. How old is she now, Billy boy? Billy boy, how old is she now, charming Billy? Three times six, four times seven, 28 and 11. She's a young thing and can't... 
She's 85 years old. (laughs) And she cannot leave her mother? There's a reality here that some people, no matter how old they are, they cannot cut the ties. And it's it's a sad reality where God's Word says, hey, listen, it is normal for your kids to grow up and find someone else whom they will fall more in love with and focus on more than you. Oh, that's a tough thing to swallow. In my plan for my family, my girls were going to be living in my house forever. Then they got to be teenagers and the plan changed. And, <laughs> and then they found those guys that they were smitten over and I felt forgotten. But that's God's design. That's the way God wants it. God wants kids to grow up to a point where when they leave the home, they're no longer subject to my rules and regulations or yours. They're supposed to be focusing on their spouse. So leaving mother and father, what does that mean? They're to become independent of parents and become dependent upon their spouse. Independent of me and dependent upon their wife, their their husband, whatever that relationship They're to cleave to that person, not cleave to mom and dad anymore. What that means, in fact, is that for some cases, he's encouraging putting distance between kids and their parents once there's a marriage that takes place. Is he talking physical distance? Is he talking other distances? You know, when we think this through, maybe we need to be real practical. Okay? For the married couples, let me give you practical advice based upon this. And by the way, parents, listen in, because you need to be guiding in this one. When you get married, you are to become financially independent of your parents. When you get married, you're to cut those emotional dependency ties upon mom and dad. You're supposed to shift that relying for emotional needs to your spouse. If your emotional gas tank needs to be filled, you get it from your spouse, not your parents. Should I add here right at the beginning? And not your kids. It's to be your spouse. That means that you are to rely first and foremost upon your spouse when it comes to counsel and decision making. That means in application, you better set up some communication barriers. For you as a couple, when it comes to how are you going to communicate with your in-laws and parents, some of those communication barriers would be like this. You don't go. You don't go to your parents for, for advice and counsel without your spouses knowing it and being aware of it. One of the barriers might be this. You don't enlist your parents' help with your finances unless you go and talk to them together. Some of those barriers might be including this. You don't carry your personal frustrations with your mate to your parents. It'll happen. It'll happen to you. It happens to most everybody in this case. If all of a sudden my wife weren't cooking and I go to my mom and say, I don't know, I've got to eat here, mom, for the night. She can't cook. Yeah, and it's really a chore. My mom would forever think, you poor soul, you're malnourished. She can't cook. I'll give you more Burger King coupons. I'll help you out. The family will forever get that impression, and it'll be a long time before they get rid of it. Be careful. It is biblical to cut the spiritual dependency ties. I've shared with you how that was traumatic for me and one of my daughters. 
where I had been her dad, her pastor, her whole life. A couple weeks after she got married, she called and says, Dad, I got a Bible question. Been going through my devotions. And the Bible says if a wife has questions, let her ask of her husband. And I said, honey, I can't talk to you. She said, oh, you're busy. I said, no, I can't talk to you about this unless you first of all asked your husband. And she says, dad. And I said, I know. But biblically, you've got to go to him first. He's got to be the one you become spiritually dependent upon. As well, that means this. You need to establish social independence from your family. That means an application. It's nice to spend time with your family. I'm not discounting that. It's nice to spend time with parents. It's nice that my kids come and spend time, more of it, with, my, with us. Okay? If you didn't hear, I'll make sure he listens to the tape. I'm going to do what some of you did. Okay? You're going to listen to this and say, I'm going to send it to so-and-so. Yeah, because I know they need it. Okay? So I'll send this to my kids. Okay? It's nice to spend time together. But in all reality, you can do things alone. As with other couples, or you can go on dates without having to have mom and dad with you. You can go out and do things. You know, you can even have a weekend away without family tagging along. You could have a holiday together without having to be at parents' place. Oh, that hurts me saying it, but it's true. You could even vacation without having all the in-laws and outlaws come along with you. That means this. Okay, For some of you, it may be wiser to put some physical distance. That may have to happen. But what I'm talking about is more than physical distance. It's more important. It's the financial. It's the emotional. It's the spiritual distancing that is important. You have to remember this. Your kids are your kids. That means an application. You're the primary provider for the kids the Lord gives you. You're the caregiver, you're the rule giver, you're the instructor. So that means when my kids come to my house, I don't become the grandkids' parent. They're still the parent. When they come to my house, they need to parent their kids. They don't just bail the kids on me. That means they still have the responsibility to make sure their kids behave, even in my house. That means as well that um, you don't become totally dependent on your parents. Go for advice. Please, please go for advice. But you don't depend upon your parents to do the work for you of parenting. It means this as well. You know, don't presume upon your parents that at every moment you want, they will be there to take care of your kids. They may have lives too. Now, it grates me to say that because I would love to have the grandkids even more. But biblically speaking... My kids have the greater responsibility to raise their kids. That's not on me. So then I take and say, okay, Lord, how does this work for being a parent? If children are to leave their father and mother and cleave unto their spouse, what's my role when my kids get old enough to get married? My role goes this way. I need to accept and allow my kids to have independence. That is, I need to remember, this is God's design that they move out. And they put some distance between us emotionally, financially. I need to remember that I respect when they're exercising their independence, not criticize them for it. That means an application. I need to encourage them to become independent. 
that they don't look to me to be the one to continue to provide all their... No, look to your spouse. Do I feel like I want to engage more? Absolutely, positively. But I've got to step back. That's what God's Word says. God's Word says they're supposed to leave. That means they need to become emotionally dependent. If they want to talk about something they're struggling with, have you talked to your spouse first? That means this, that I need to be careful not to intrude into their relationship and their marriage. That in practical application, their house is their house. I'm a guest in their house. I have no right to assume that when they plan to do something, they immediately include me or us. As a parent, that means I don't ad- I'm not supposed to advise them when they're not asking or looking for advice. I'm not supposed to be getting involved in their business and their decisions. They're an independent family. They're a unit that, you know, I'm not supposed to make unsolicited comments. You have no right going into your daughter-in-law's house and telling her how she should redecorate it. You have no right to walk in and say, this is how you should raise your kids. They're their kids. If they ask, if there's some tragic need, yes, but please be cautious that you follow the Word of God, even as parents. That means... As well, I don't have the right to ask prying questions. Their finances, their purchases, I may not agree with what little I know, but it's their responsibility, it's their business. If they're making bad bad decisions financially, that's on them. And I don't have to bail them out because they're my kid. Maybe, maybe it would be good that they learn their lesson and have to fend for themselves. As well... I have to remember, their kids are their kids. They're not mine. Yes, do I love having them over? Absolutely, and it's such wonderful. I can have them over, get them wound up, and send them home. (laughs) The joy of grandparenting. There's nothing like it. It's one, But I don't presume that I have the right to tell them how to parent. I had my shot on telling them how to parent by doing it before them. When uh, I don't have a right to intrude, if they're disciplining their children, God forbid you would intervene because you think your grandchild doesn't deserve it. I know. Our grandchildren are perfect. How that happened with the kids we raised, I don't know. But you have no right to interfere when they're disciplining their kids. No right unless there's a physical threat, then you have the right to intervene with anybody. But you have no right they have they are the parents that means you encourage your grandkids to always respect their parents you never cut down the parents before your grandkids you don't question them you don't challenge them that way you be careful when their kids are in your house and they're sitting at the table and it's difficult i know if the parents are there i am not to be the one correcting the kids If there's an issue going on, hey, Tony, did you know that such and such is happening? That's the cue. Get on it, buddy. Make them aware of it, that they need to do it. My my wife's mother used to come and visit us, and we loved it. And she was a godly woman, sweet woman. It It was fun. She would come when our kids were little and grandma them because she didn't have the opportunity. She was living in Minnesota. So usually once a year she'd come for a month. I mean, a month. 
And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. But every time, and we had a great relationship, just a wonderful relationship. Katie was such a sweetheart. But it would happen, excuse me, it would happen that all of a sudden she was getting comfortable and she was in the house and we would be there and then all of a sudden she's correcting the kids while I'm just standing there. And it's like, Katie, it's time for you to go. And I meant that kindly. And it was. And she'd go, yeah, you're right. Okay, I've been here for three and a half weeks. Yeah, it's time to go home. But, but it wasn't a, a mean situation, but it was an obvious situation that, hey, listen, you're starting to overstep your boundaries. And to keep it biblical, we're putting distance between you and us, Katie. Go home a thousand miles away. But, uh, you know, the idea is, listen, as parents, if the kids make plans and you're not included in their vacation plans, their getting away plans, don't get upset with them. Don't give them the guilt trip. They can do that, biblically. They can have their own home. So what's it mean for putting it together? I am not saying it's wrong for couples to ever move back home for a short period of time because of a certain circumstance. But it's short-timed. I'm not saying it's wrong to ever help out in a crisis, but they shouldn't be dependent upon you. I'm not saying that you should never get advice or seek for advice. I think this, young couples, you're foolish not to get advice from people who have had experience. But I'm saying be careful and with agreement. We're not saying that younger couples should have nothing to do with parents, should ignore them, should shirk their responsibility. No, no, biblically speaking, I'm sending this part to my kids. As your parents get older, they may need assistance. And it says, if any, provide not for his own. And in that text, it's your older relatives. If you don't provide for your own, especially for those of your own household, you've denied the faith and worse than an infidel. We, as we get older, our parents get older, we have a responsibility to make sure that things are cared for. So you can't just ignore them. And many of you are going through that. Thank God you're doing it biblically, taking care of your elderly parents. God bless you in that. That's not easy. So we look at it and say, okay, so where do we go with this? You remember this rule. The rule that God says you leave your father and mother. And remember this. This includes both of you, husband and wife, and both sets of parents. You need to sever some ties. Then there's another rule that's given in the same text that goes hand in hand with this. The rule is this. When you get married, you're to make your partner, since you left mom and dad, you make your partner the primary, the priority relationship in your life. When he said leave mother and father, he added to that that idea that, okay, you're shifting from your former family ties, the siblings, the parents that you never dreamed you would leave, but now you've been smitten by somebody. You're planning to get out. Then it says cleave unto your wife. And keep on becoming one flesh is the idea in the Hebrew. The cleaving means to be glued together. Literally, that's the wording. Become glued together. Hold fast. Depend upon one another. It says when the the idea of become one flesh, it's the idea to be united. To keep on becoming one flesh. And it's more than just sex, though that's a part of it. It's more than the intimacy of marriage. It's the idea of keep on growing to be closer and closer and closer, to become more, more intimate in conversation, more dependent in relationship, more sharing, 
Okay, how can you do this? Some suggestions, spend some time together. Spend time. This, This is such an obvious, but it is so easy to overlook the obvious when we get busy. Spend time together. Talk and share with each other. Here's a stat for you. A recent survey indicated that on the average, married couples in America spend 27 and a half minutes per week talking directly to each other about anything we're talking personal, of their personal things like finances, their relationship. At the same time, there's 40 hours a week watching TV or other stuff. There's a dearth in America of communication, even though we have all the technology. We're becoming more distant in relationships. Maybe, maybe that ability to be able to stay up late and do technology isn't such a blessing in every, situ- in every case. Maybe it's taken away from just sitting there, you know, old days with a candle, and you had to talk because there wasn't much else you could do. So what we do is we say this, develop common interests, rely more and more upon each other, have trust in each other. You need to work at removing the irritations. And I'm presuming this is a reality of every one of our, our lives. There are going to be moments we irritate each other. We're sinners. It's going to happen. But we need to deal with it biblically. Deal with conflicts biblically and quickly. Don't do what this guy did. This couple were mad at each other. They had a quarrel. They decided to give the silent treatment. Two days into their silent argument, the man realized, I need my wife's help. I'm going on a business trip. I need to get up at 5 a.m. for this important trip. So he wasn't going to be the first one to break the silence. He left a note. Please wake me up at 5 a.m. The next morning, he wakes up at 6 a.m. He missed the flight, missed the business deal. He's angry. He's going to storm out because his wife isn't in the bedroom at all. He's going to find her and find out, what did you do? And then he notices it. There's a note on his bed. And the note read, very simply, it's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) That's not how you handle conflict. Okay? What you need to do is be forgiving of each other. Be patient with each other. Lower your fantasy expectations. Fantasy expectations is realizing not every meal is going to be Thanksgiving. Not every day are we going to look like we dressed up. We might not look so good some days. I don't want to go any further with that illustration. (laughs) Fantasy expectations are like, we've got no responsibilities. We're just going to have fun all the time. And it's like, what world are you living in? You got to work. You got you to go through real life. You got to talk about the bills. And Oh, that's a fun thing, isn't it? Let's talk about how much you're spending and how much I'm spending. You spent $25 on groceries to feed all six of us in one week? How could you spend 25 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> at another ministry where I was at, I counseled a couple. I'm not, and this is no joke. And it's twenty, you know, it's back in the in the '80s. But that was the real argument in their home. She spent twenty-five dollars a week for groceries for four kids, including diapers and everything, and the hus- and the couple. And he went out, and. It was getting close to hunting season, so he bought himself a brand new bow and arrow, bought himself a new rifle. He, actually, he needed a second rifle. And he was mad that she spent $25 for the last, oh, every week for the last month. And he just spent like several hundred dollars. 
And, you know, I kept telling her, divorce is not an option. Murder, but not divorce. You know, <laughs> yeah. So learning to pray with each other. The idea of speaking well of each other. So practically speaking, how, how regularly make time for just the two of you. It's called a date. It was the things you used to do that you enjoyed before you got married. And once you said, I do, you thought, I'm done. Still go on dates. Make it your goal to please your spouse, not other people. Don't get so busy that you're racing through life. It's wonderful to have kids. It's glorious, and it's a thrill. It's a, but they take time. And as they get older, guess what? They take more time. That's not bad. That's good. But if you're going to get your kids involved in extra school, extracurricular activities, you could be going every night of the week easily, eh? Your life can get busy, but you get so busy doing that stuff, you don't have time for each other. You've got your smooch when you get in bed and you're both sound asleep 10 seconds later. And you say, everything's great. It's not going to stay great. You've got to get back to the directions that say you need to spend some time. You need to make sure that even in the busyness of doing good things, for, I use the hunting illustration. Hunting isn't evil. If it is for you, that's fine. But it's not evil in the Word of God. But can it become a problem in a relationship? Yes or no? Can somebody over, over swing it to the point to neglect their spouse? Yeah. Is a house an evil thing? Some of you aren't sure, okay? Is house an evil thing? Okay, does it take time to work on it? Can a project that you start and you're going to finish it over the weekend, and it's only going to cost you 100 bucks, can it expand and explode and take multiple weekends? Listen, it, for any of you who, are t- who have never had a home before, when I say can it, it will. Yes? It always costs more. It always takes more time. And it puts more pressure on you. Is it wrong to do those things? No. Yeah, you probably need a bedroom for the kids. Get them off the attic, you know, and get them into a room. You know, the garage probably you get in trouble sleeping them out there for, you know, the next winter. Um, so you, you've got to do those things. But can those things all of a sudden dominate? Yeah. You need to take time. You need to have time where you, you know, you're working. You're openly complimenting. You want to help build each other up and let them, let, let them know, you know that, that you think they're special? Tell others. Brag on them. Tell, let others know how sweet and how kind and how wonderful your spouse is. I'm sending this part to Deb. Um, <laughs> be affectionate in small ways. The sugs, the pats. You know, some people, their, their desire is more as far as the physical aspect of, you know, more hugs, more pats, more that. Other people, some of us aren't that. That's not our love language. But still, it's got to be given to some degree. Set aside time where you just talk to each other each day. If it's five minutes, just sit down. You know, put the kids in a closet. Do something, but sit down and talk. We mutually agree. Yeah, how much time you, it's okay for an extracurricular hobby. Mutually agree on those things. Learn to say no 
to some things so that you can focus on your spouse. And don't just keep saying yes and yes. Somebody asks you to do this. Yes, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And you're not spending time together. You may have to say no to some things. Seek to always support and protect your mate. Let them know you appreciate and love them. Then there's this rule that I'm going to just jump quickly because I think I need a whole sermon on this and it's not time to be able to do that. It's God's plan for couples to make a lifetime commitment when they make a commitment. It's lifetime. Okay? The Word of God says you keep on becoming one. You're glued together. One cannot be divided. It was not God's intent with this idea. When he glues you together, God didn't say, okay, I'm just going to put people together and maybe they'll stick. Okay? That wasn't his plan. In fact, the idea is what's in the marriage vows, till death do us part. Okay? And I know, I know this is not popular. I know this, I'll get condemned for this one. I know that the trend is, if it gets bad, bail. But that's not biblical. You know, it, it's, it, there's a lot of bailing going on. This is a recent survey that's taken just in the last few years. When you talk about the amount of divorce rate, they're talking 45, at least 45% of all marriages that have taken place on average in America are ending in divorce. Basically, where half the marriages, within a few years, they'll be done. That's a pretty significant percentage. And then you start saying, okay, what about couples? The younger couples getting married, between 20 and 25 years old, their percentage of divorce is 60% of those couples. Okay? Then you start saying, okay, what about those who have a second or third marriage? Their percentages go much higher okay, in America. And you say, okay, who does more of the divorcing, the guys or the gals? Who files? The girls file more than the guys. The gals file more so. What are the main reasons given for divorce? The top three that are given here, money pressures is 25%, financial problems, alcohol or drug abuse, substance abuse of some sort is 25%, and then infidelity is 40% of the reasons that are given now. And so you look at it and go, man, oh man, those who claim that let's do the homosexuality, same sex, will we have safer, they're even worse in their statistics. They're 50% higher than the norm. So you look at it and say, in our culture, is divorce acceptable? Yes. Is it even advocated? Yes. Okay, so we go back and say, wait a minute, what does God say? And some of you, rightfully so, you say, hey, Wayne, didn't God make allowance for divorce? Didn't Jesus make allowance for a divorce? He did. Both of them did. They did. They made allowance where Jesus said in the case of infidelity, God said if, they, if she loses pleasure in your sight. It was there, which again, I need to explain more thoroughly. And Paul even said later on, he says, if the unbeliever chooses to depart, let him depart. So where God permitted it, that's true. But God doesn't promote it. Okay, there's a huge difference there. So when people often come up with this question, they say, Pastor, what about this? What, is there an exception? And they're looking for it. I remind them of this biblical truth, that even though divorce is permitted, the Word of God doesn't stress get a divorce. It limits when you can get a divorce. The Word of God very clearly in ancient societies, it came to a point, even the point where Jesus was, that divorce became so rampant. They took Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, and it says, if she loses pleasure in your sight... So the Jews by Jesus' day were saying, if she gets gray hair, she's lost my pleasure. I can divorce her. If she's gained weight, I can divorce her. 
If she, and by the way, I'm stressing something here. The gals did not have the right for divorce. The men did. If she isn't cooking the way I like her to, if she isn't cleaning the house, I can divorce them. We have documents that clearly show the rabbis were advocating divorce whenever your wife displeased you. So it became rampant. And so then it comes up, it says, okay, Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, hey, didn't, you know, what about this divorce? Didn't Moses say that, didn't he command us to divorce our wives if they displeased us? They were twisting scripture. Because God, in the, even in the ancient days, he limited how the Jews were to conduct themselves. Divorce in most ancient societies was very easy, but God said, not for you Jews. I'm going to put some limitations. And by doing that, he was protecting the ladies. Because the ladies whose husbands could easily divorce, what was their options? Very few options. If they didn't have a good dowry, they're going to have to provide by themselves, going back to a family member or going and living on the streets and selling their bodies, committing adultery, which he warns. He says, those of you who get with this woman, you're committing adultery. But she was put in a no-win situation. So God says, okay, I'm going to limit this. I'm going to protect the innocent parties in those cases. I'm going to allow it in rare situations, which he did, which Jesus spoke about when they came. And he says, have you not read? Have you not read that this wasn't what it was supposed to be from the beginning? In the beginning, God had said, a man shall leave his father and mother, they shall cleave and they shall be one. And what God has joined together, Jesus said, let no man put asunder. And they said, well, then why did Moses command us to give a a divorce? Moses never commanded them to give a divorce. Number one, he allowed it in rare situations based upon the hardness of your hearts. And to protect, you have hard hearts, you do something, we're going to protect the family, the innocent ones. So is divorce permissible? The answer was yes, but that's not the point. We get hung up on that. The real point is, when you say I do, you say I do for life. It's a commitment, it's a covenant before God and that person. That means to be serious, think this through. That means that you should approach marriage with this in mind. This is lifetime before God. This isn't just for a few years or until we get through school. This is for life. So you better ask yourself some real questions. Do I know them well enough? Have we spent enough time to get together to know if we match? E-harmony says we do. That's not enough. It means, you ask yourself, can I put up with them for that long? It means, if you have doubts or reservations, punt, delay. If you don't think they can meet your emotional needs, it's not going to get better just because you say, I do. If you don't have confidence and trust in that other person, it's not going to change just because you say, I do. You make sure those things are settled ahead of time. It makes sure this, you have the mindset that we need to work out our problems. We don't bail, which means you've got to work at finding ways to become flexible and find compromise so you can solve those conflicts. You don't just say, well, we can't get along, so we're just done. No, you've got to find solutions because you're staying together by the word of God. So we've got to work. I've got to be able to say, okay, here's where we can both give and we can work together and we find a solution. It means you never, 
ever bring this up, threaten in the midst of the heat of an argument, do not bring up, fine, let's get a divorce. That should be absolutely taboo in the believer's vocabulary. It's too easy. It's too easy to run at those moments. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't allow it to become part of your argument to beat the other one down. Because the more you do that, the more it becomes a possible reality in your own mind. Don't do it. You say and you come and you say, I'm going to enter this relationship. We are committed for life. Well, maybe I can end their life. No, 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 no. Okay. We're committed for life. No matter how long, how old we get, we're committed for life. So we've got to work on it. We've got to work on it. That's what the Bible demands on us. The Bible demands we focus on each other, we separate, we, we leave, put some distancing, we're focusing on this, and we're making this our goal to get along, to improve, to do better week after week, month after month, year after year, because we're together for life. There's a couple that, that did this. Their kids wrote the story about this couple who was an older couple, that, and she passed away. But the grandkids and the parents, they knew grandma and grandpa loved each other dearly. They were committed to each other. They saw it every day. And when they came to the funeral, they were standing, the grandkids and, and parents, they were standing by a casket, and they saw a spray there, and it had Schmilly written on it. And they said, I've seen Schmilly all over. Who, who, who's, what's Schmilly? And they started asking, and, and they all said, we saw Schmilly. We would see Schmilly, the kids, the adult kids were telling their grandkids, we, we saw Schmilly written on the mirror in the bathroom. We saw Schmilly written in the sand. One of the grandkids said, hey, I saw Grandma make a cake not too long ago, and in the icing she had Schmilly. Yeah, what's with this? Who did? And, you know, who's, what, what's, and so Grandpa came up and they asked him. And he said, it was our little thing between Grandma and us. We just started this when we were a young couple. We started it as a game, but it became so important to us that we would write schmilly notes to each other anywhere, everywhere we could and try to outdo each other. And schmilly was a simple code that simply meant this, see how much I love you. They let each other know in every way they could, silly, serious, but it became a fun thing for them. Find your schmilly. Work with it. Let them know you are still in love. Father, I pray, help us not just to take these feeble words and send them to somebody else. Help us. Help us in all seriousness, though I joke about that. Help us to apply them to our own hearts, our own lives, our own homes. If there's any here who doesn't know Christ, help them to reach out so they can start with that relationship with you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.